There are many, many examples of sequels in movies. We have the, uh, of course, Star Wars. I believe there's nine in that series, uh, maybe more. And also, like movies, old movies like The Godfather had at least three iterations of that. And um, Indiana Jones had quite a few. Uh, you know, he's still making movies, even though he's 80 years old, as Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford is. But all of these are examples of sequels. Well, you could also say that Christ's coming had a, will have a sequel as well. Uh, you could call it Christmas 2.0. We've already had the first advent, but we are waiting for the second advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ as well. Micah looks beyond the Assyrian captivity of Israel to the Babylonian invasion of Judah. And God's people, we learned from last week's message, will be systematically opposed, but ultimately they will most certainly be saved. This is true for God's old covenant as well as his new covenant people. But who will save them? Where will this Savior come from? And in chapter 5, verses 1 through 2, that passage is a little bit sad, especially verse 1, where it seems that even that the line of David would be broken through the final king of Judah, who is Zedekiah. And in his last day, he saw his sons killed, and that was the last vision that he had. And then his eyes were poked out. He was put in chains and brought to Babylon. So from an objective observer's viewpoint, it seems like the line of David is broken. But what about all of the promises that God made to Israel? Will they be fulfilled? And then in the very next verse, chapter 5, verse 2, the tone has changed. It goes from extreme pessimism and depression to exuberant joy because Micah announces the birthplace of the ruler who is the Messiah, who is Christ, the Son of the living God. And in chapter 5, verse 2, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And so Micah succinctly answers that question, who will it be? It will be an eternal one, one who had no beginning and no end, but who will also rule. And it gives us his birthplace, Bethlehem, not Jerusalem, but a suburb of that major capital city. That is where he will be born. The eternal one, the ruler, will come from the most unlikely place, not Jerusalem, but rather Bethlehem. He will be timeless and he will most certainly rule. But what will he do? So Micah is systematically answering these questions. Where will he come from? What will his title be? And tell us a little bit about him. Well, he's timeless. He's coming from Bethlehem. But now he answers the question that should pop in our minds as we start to read about the Messiah. What will he do? What are the tasks that he will accomplish? And Micah answers that question in the rest of chapter 5. He tells us about what the Messiah will do, having told us a little bit about where he comes from and who he is. But what, seems, what he seems to do is answer the question in a very flexible way as far as time. He tells us that the ruler, what the ruler will do for his people in the short term, but then also in the long term as well. In chapter 5, verses 2 through 15, I believe interwoven 
in Micah's description of what the Messiah will do are two comings. The first advent, as well as the second advent, interwoven with each other. And so first he looks into the medium-term future, about 750 years from his standpoint in the 8th century, up to the time of Christ, roughly 750 years later. But then he also looks at the second advent as well, 2,700 plus years into the future from his time perspective in roughly 750 B.C. So he looks at the time of Christ, you know, some most scholars say that Jesus was born in 1 or 2 A.D. Micah's in roughly 750 B.C., so he looks to 1 to 2 A.D., and then he looks again also into the distant future, which is at least 2,700 plus and counting years from his time frame in 750. And he gives us the answers as to what the Messiah is going to do. The content of his job description, you could say. And so Micah chapter 2 verses 2 and Micah chapter 5 verses 2 and 3 seem to put together the two comings of Christ. First, the time that's signified by the cross there, but then also the time of his second coming by that descending arrow um, later on the graph behind me. So he puts together the two comings of Christ. You might say, well, that's a little bit artificial. Are you sure that's what he's doing? Well, Isaiah, who is Micah's contemporary, and it's very possible that these two prophets actually knew each other because they grew up not too far apart from one another. Um, uh, Isaiah does this as well in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, a passage that we see over and over again, especially at Christmas time. Verse 6, which is in the yellow, it says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's obviously about the first advent of Christ, his first coming. But then the very next verse, verse 7 in white, says this, Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And that is clearly his second coming, because Christ did not reign on the throne of David because Israel rejected him. And so even from our perspective, that text in the white is future tense, whereas the text in the yellow, verse 6, is past tense from our perspective. But for Isaiah, as well as Micah, both of those things are future tense. And so since Isaiah does it, it's very likely, I believe, that Micah is doing this in the balance of chapter 5, where he interweaves the first and second comings of Christ. You could say Christmas 1.0 and Christmas 2.0 happen in chapter 5, the first and second comings of Christ. So Micah goes back and forth and seems to blend the two advents of the Messiah. So if Christ was received by Israel at his first coming, his second coming could would, would not have been necessary in the same way. All of the promises would have been fulfilled if Israel had received Christ as Messiah. The kingdom of God on the earth would have taken place right then and there. But we know that Israel rejected Christ. At least the leadership of Israel definitely, definitively rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. 
But Micah is flexible enough to where if for in future time, from his perspective, that Christ was received by the nation, then his prophecy still would have fit perfectly because everything would have been achieved. But instead, Israel, as we know, rejected Christ. And so therefore, it required a second coming in the same way that we see that is recorded in Scripture, especially in Revelation chapter 19. And so Micah um, says that if Christ was received by Israel at the first coming, his second coming would not have been necessary in the same way. But Micah chapter 5, verses 4 through 6, tell us more about what Christ will do. Look what it says there in verses 4 through 6. It says, He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. When the Assyrian invades our land and marches through our fortresses, we will raise against him seven shepherds, even eight leaders of men, or six. They will rule the land of Syria with the sword, the land of Nimrod with drawn sword. He will deliver us from the Assyrian when he invades our land and marches into our borders. So what is Christ doing? What's his job description? What are the tasks that he accomplishes? Well, he will shepherd and give peace to his people. That's clear. He will shepherd and give peace to his people. Foreign powers will invade, but they will be opposed. That same idea is found in verses 7 through 9. Look what verses 7 through 9 says. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which do not wait for man or linger for mankind. The remnant of Jacob, or a portion of Israel, Jacob's the same as Israel, will be among the nations in the midst of many peoples like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which mauls and mangles as it goes, and no one can rescue. Your hand will be lifted up in triumph over your enemies, and all your foes will be destroyed. So that same idea is in chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, that a remnant of Jacob, a portion of the nation of Israel, will refresh and be refreshing to the nations and also be quite resilient. So in his, in his first coming, Christ will shepherd and give peace to his people. Foreign powers will be successfully opposed because that's what it says in verses four through six. Now in Micah's perspective, Israel was not successful in opposing the Assyrian invasion. So this has to be a different period of time. So to pull everything together, I know it's getting a little confusing, but if you pull everything together, it can be summarized by the statement. Christ will secure, shepherd, and save his people in both of his comings. How does he do those three things in his first coming? How does he secure, how does he shepherd, and how does he save his people in his first coming? Well, if you look at even at the time of Christ when he first came, and you look at Israelite history, all of her ancient foes were successfully vanquished either directly or indirectly. The Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, and the Romans as well, because they were past the peak of their power when Christ walked the face of the earth. And even they would be gone soon as well. 
all of the empires, all of the large nation states that Nebuchadnezzar prophesied to Daniel and Daniel interpreted would be gone. But the Jews would live on. Amazing stuff. And so this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. So he will secure his people. He will allow his people to endure and they will experience peace. Now, the enemy will continue to come at them, but they will just look at all these empires pile up on the ash heap of history and they will go on and on and on. I mean, that is some really good evidence for the truth of Scripture, in my opinion, that the Jewish nation of all people groups is still with us and it's still identifiable. And they have their own nation and they have nuclear weapons. <laughs> I mean, it, it should not have happened that way, but it did. And we're living in it. But then, since you can make the case that Christ's first coming definitely allowed his people to continue to be secure, that even though they were rebellious from him, he still secured them and gave them peace. How did he shepherd in his first coming? Jesus was and is the chief shepherd, the good shepherd. How did he do this in his first coming? Well, that's real simple to to make a case for, because Jesus ministered amongst the people for three years. He fed thousands of them. He healed many of them. And he exercised demons out of many of them as well. That's how he shepherded them. That's how he graciously and tenderly cared for his people. Now, that wasn't the main reason why he came. He did it to show who he was. That if he can heal people, if he has that ability and that authority to heal the lame and cure blindness, he must have the same authority and ability, too, to forgive us of our sins, see? which is the main reason why he came, to serve those who are lost, to shepherd them, to bring them into himself, to call his people to himself. And if you had to pick one verse to exemplify the attitude of Jesus in terms of all the peoples of Israel, Matthew 23, 37, does a pretty good job at that, I think. It says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, in the words of our Savior, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. This is his attitude. This is his perspective that he wanted to gently bring them to himself. But they shook their fist at him and said, crucify him, crucify him. And they did. But in his first coming, he still allowed Israel's foes to be vanquished one after another, even into modern times. He shepherded his people in his first coming, and then he also saved them as well. All three of these verbs, all three of these aspects you could say of his job description, he did brilliantly in his, in his, in his first coming. He saved all who would believe in him as well. Because after he did the three years of ministry, ultimately that culminated in his crucifixion. And so Jesus was taken from the cross 
And the Roman soldiers said, this man is definitely dead. And so we're going to bury him. And those Roman Praetorian guards who stood guard there, they knew what death looked like. And they knew that he had expired. And so they buried him. They put him in the tomb. And during that three-day time, he processed or paid for, see, he expedited the sins of the world, John tells us. So since the beginning of recorded time, some sociologists say that there have been 105 billion people who have lived or who are currently living, about 8 billion right now, but that means 97 people have come and gone. But he paid for the sins of all of them. But in order for that salvation to be applied to them, they must express belief and trust in Jesus. That's to be his response. It's not universalism, but Jesus died for the sins of the world. And so therefore, what do we do with that? Well, we have to recognize that we're sinners and we have to recognize that we need to trust in Jesus. What does, what does the, the Greek word for belief mean? Pistis. What does that mean? It means that I believe something to be true. I understand it, first of all. Secondly, I understand that it applies to me. And thirdly, I trust and rely in it. So when I understand the gospel that Jesus died as my substitute, and I'm a sinner, so therefore it applied to me, then the third aspect of that faith is to say, I trust in it. And so I transfer my trust from something else. If I'm a religious person, I might have believed wrongly that my baptism saved me or the fact that my great-grandfather was a pastor or I have perfect church attendance and that's what saves me that's what makes me right with God and I realize that we're not saved by works Ephesians 2 8 9 I love that passage because it doesn't just tell us how we're saved it also tells us how we're not saved it makes it perfectly clear that we're not saved by works lest any man should boast and so I transfer my trust from something else to Christ or if I was raised as a non-religious person and I didn't know I needed to be saved at all in the first place, then maybe I transfer my trust from nothing else to Christ. And then I'm saved. But Jesus did the work for our salvation, our reconnection to him, our reconciliation to him. He did all of the work absolutely necessary for our forgiveness So all the bad stuff is no longer applied to us because it was applied to Jesus. And not only is all the bad stuff taken away from me, but all the good stuff that I need, the righteousness of Jesus, is put into my account. So as I've said many times, our salvation is more than just going from a massive deficit to neutral, to zero. No, it's the adding on of all the blessings and the vindication that Jesus had. So Jesus takes the bad stuff and also gives us the good stuff. And so we're forgiven of our sin, but the righteousness of Jesus is put into our accounts as well. And so Jesus, in his first coming, did everything necessary for us to be reconnected back to God. It's more than just getting our sins forgiven. It's also hastening and enhancing the deep relationship and fellowship that we can have in Christ. So we're called to be not just believers, but also disciples, learners and followers of Jesus. That's what I hope we're all becoming in this room, as well as those who are watching through live stream as well.
So Jesus, in his first coming, gave his people, whether Old Covenant or New Covenant, security. He shepherded them, and he also made it possible for them to be saved, to be reconnected back to God. The remnant of Jacob that verses 7 and 8 speak about, who would be resilient and powerful, I believe, from Micah's perspective, in the first coming, were the first Christians. And all of the first Christians were Jews. That's why he uses the term the remnant of Jacob. These people who would be like dew or an early morning rain. They would bring refreshment to the world. How did he do that? Well, by telling others about the gospel. So all the first Christians for the first few years were Jews. They were the remnant of Jacob. And they told people about the gospel. First Gentile Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, but everybody before that was Jewish. And so the foes of chapter 5 verse 9 were spiritual and the demonic world, and they could not stand against the church. The gates of hell would not ever prevail against the church. And so these are the foes that Micah refers to, I believe, in verse 9. But then how did Jesus do these things? Let me back up. How did Jesus do these things also in the second coming? If our theory is correct that he's interweaving the first and second coming, he does the same tasks at different times and maybe slightly different aspects. How about the second coming? How about Christmas 2.0? How does he do these things? Well, in his second coming... He will secure the peace of Israel. You might say, oh, did he secure the peace of Israel through a peace conference? You know, getting everybody together in the same room and kind of hashing it out. And then everybody comes to reason and says, oh, I've been misunderstanding you all these years. No, he secures the peace through a war. A very big war. And we know what the name of that war is. It is called Armageddon. Some people say, oh, well, war never solved anything. Actually, if you know some history, war frequently solves problems. Now, I wouldn't advocate a war, but yet war frequently solves problems. And so Israel received the peace ultimately through a war, the battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 16. It's all through the Bible. You've got Ezekiel 38 and 39. You've got Zechariah chapter 14. You've got Revelation chapter 14. You've got Matthew 24. All these places where this war of Armageddon is mentioned. It's in the valley of Jezreel. It's on the hill of Megiddo. That's where we get Armageddon from. And so as we know in the, in the book of Revelation... We should know this because we spent a lot of time in the book of Revelation. We have the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, those three movements of judgments. And we're toward the end of the third cycle of judgments here. Six of seven. This is the sixth one. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle in the great day of God Almighty. So all of these nations come. Together, they muster, not around Jerusalem, they muster in the valley of Jezreel near the hill, which is not that big, of Megiddo. And they come together. 
the last verse there, then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And they gather together all in one place. I believe perhaps hundreds of millions of soldiers. How do we know that? Well, because John tells us in Revelation chapter 14 that the blood runs 180 miles, which is the length of the Jordan River Valley, as well as the Valley of Jezreel, where Armageddon is. And it runs as deep as the horse's bridle, which is three to four feet from the ground. That's a lot of blood. That shows there's a lot of death. God will bring peace to his people. All of these nations were given plenty of time to repent and change their mind about who Jesus is, to repent about their sin, the fact that they're sinners and they need to to trust in Jesus as their Savior. But they are part of the system of Babylon who will continually shake their fist at God and shake their fist at God's people. And they will pay for it ultimately through this battle. And that is how God will ultimately bring peace through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ, His one and only Son, in His second coming. But how will He shepherd the people? Well, they will be gathered, and the nation will be established. The nation, the kingdom that has been promised for so long, will ultimately be established. In Revelation chapter 19, starting at verse 11, this is the verse I asked you to look up before. Revelation 19, verse 11, this is the vision of the return of Christ from the heavens to the face of the earth. And John says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one but he himself knows. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Uh, That's In the Greek, that's logos. His name is the Logos. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He gathers The armies of heaven, which includes you and me. He gathers the armies of heaven like a shepherd. He pulls them together, but he's more at this point in time. He's a lot more than just a shepherd. He is a military leader. And he brings the armies of heaven to the face of the earth once again. And he gathers his people. So in the second coming, he will secure his people. He will also gather and shepherd his people, but he will also save his people. You see, the remnant of Jacob just before his second coming will be resilient. Perhaps, this is a little bit of conjecture, I don't know this for sure, but perhaps this remnant of Jacob are the 144,000 12,000 from 12 tribes, 144,000 evangelistic Jewish messianic believers. These are the people 
who will bring, as Micah says, they will bring refreshment, they will bring dew, they will bring a light, refreshing rain to the peoples of the earth who are going through this hell on earth in the great tribulation, the final years of the seven-year tribulation period. They will be the ones who offer the hope to a lost and very dying world that is being ripped apart by the justified seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. This is one of the things that, that struck me as I went deep in the book of Revelation for really the first time in my life as I prepared the sermons for you guys two, and a, two years ago, whatever, or a year and a half to two years ago. And the number of people who will be saved during the tribulation period. <laughs> like, wow. And who's going to do that? These 144,000 Billy Grahams will get things started. <laughs> and they'll bring refreshment. The remnant of Jacob will be there. And they'll be busy at work bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Other Jews and Gentiles as well will be brought to a saving knowledge of the Christ. If he provides our security and our guidance and our salvation in Christmas 1.0 and Christmas 2.0, first and second advent, call it what you will. If he does do that, and I believe he does, and I know you do too. If he provides our security, guidance, and salvation, where do you and I, right now, right now, where do we get our security and our directions and our forgiveness from? Where do we get those things from in a real practical way? Do we get them from Christ? Do we request them from him? That you are the one that truly makes me secure. It's not my abilities. It's not the family I came from. Not the way I look or how many education degrees I have. That gives me security. It's you and you alone. You're the one who makes me secure. You're the one who guides me as I peruse the pages of Scripture to find out the answers to all the big and little questions of life. You're the one who gives me. You're the one who shepherds me. You give me the answers that I demand, that I need, more than anything else. And you're the one who saves me. You're the one who graciously reaches down and pays for my salvation and tells me about it. Um, But what else does he do? The list is not exhausted. Look what verses 10 through 15 say, way back in Isaiah chapter 5. It says this, In that day, declares the Lord, I will destroy your horses from among you, and I will demolish your chariots. I will destroy the cities of your land. I will tear down all your strongholds. I will destroy your witchcraft, and you will no longer cast spells. I will destroy your carved images and your sacred stones from among you. You will no longer bow down to the work of your hands. I will uproot you from among you your own Asherah poles and demolish your cities. I will take vengeance and anger and wrath upon the nations that have not obeyed me. Oh, he's so patient. He's, I, th- I think you'd all agree, he's a lot more patient than we are, right? It's like, God, you're so patient. But ultimately he will judge. Ultimately he will bring about justice. Justice defined by him. He'll cleanse the nation. He'll remove all the nonsense and false idols 
that we're tempted to follow after. He'll get rid of all of it for it. He'll make us clean. Those temptations will be gone. This is what he, he does in his first and second comings. He will purge his people of their idols and false worship in both of his comings. All the things that you were tempted to trust and worship will be taken away from you, whether they be religious items or whether they be neutral things like horses and chariots and 401Ks, (laughs) things that I trust in to give me value and security. All of that will be upended. And also I will remove the religious nonsense as well, the witchcraft, the seances, and the Ouija boards. Those will all be obliterated. You see, in his first coming, how did Jesus do this? How did he cleanse us? How did he purge his people? In his first coming, Jesus lambasted, not the people in general, Jesus lambasted the religious establishment. You high priests, you Levites, you governmental leaders, you were supposed to lead the people to me, but instead... Instead, you led the people to yourselves for your own selfish gain. You took the wonderful, perfect law of God, and on top of it, you put layer after layer after layer after layer of human laws and rules and regulations. And you taught the people to be a bunch of legalists. You taught them to be religious and not in a relationship with me. This is what was supposed to happen in the temple But instead, you have money changers parked outside making exorbitant profits. You know. And so Jesus upended them, literally and figuratively and metaphorically. In his first coming, Jesus criticized harshly the religious establishment, the puppet kings and their pride. Israel was a nation reacting against Greek influence, the Hellenistic philosophy. They were a nation reacting against the Greeks and the Romans, and they fell into legalism. They established the Pharisees, whose job was to maintain the purity of their faith and way. But instead, they just made it into a humanistic religion, adding layer and layer of legalism onto the perfect good law of God. And so the law was distorted. They had a long history as well before the Pharisees of worshiping the gods of the Canaanites and Babylon, Babylonians. So that is how Christ cleansed his people in the first coming. But when Christ returns at Christmas 2.0, there will be another entity that he will decimate. And it exists in real time. It is around us. We're so used to it, we can't tell the difference between the Babylonian system and our faith sometime because we're so immersed in it. This ancient system, not just the place of Babylon, but the ancient system that has always opposed God and the people of God, that will ultimately be destroyed. In fact, John spends two chapters of the book of Revelation giving great detail about how this system that has existed for thousands of years that's just set up to oppose God and oppose God's people at every turn, it will be obliterated. It has a religious aspect to it. It has a financial aspect to it. And both will be destroyed. The whore will be killed. This 
ancient system known as Babylon, and he will purify his people. So, if he purifies us, takes us away, what can we do about it like right now? Well, we can reflect on our own inner lives. Where do we get? Where do we get our truth from? We're just set up to operate on automatic, on default mode. And so we look to our logic. We look to our experience. And we even look to our intuition, and sometimes it's right. That doesn't mean that all three of those methodologies are always wrong. But they are fallen. They are imperfect. There's one source of truth, one source of information that always trumps these other humanistic ones, and that's Scripture. So when one or all of these others oppose Scripture, Scripture always should win in the life of the believer, even if it defies the logic that we love so much, especially as Westerners. Scripture should always trump it. So that's why Christians, that's why we look, we, we have Christian missionaries come here and they're they're going to the craziest places in the world. Well, that's because we're supposed to walk by faith and not by sight. And so in the kingdom of God, going to risky places is normal. In the kingdom of the world, it is freakish at best. It's stupid. So we've got to allow the word of God to overwhelm how we perceive truth, whether it's by experience, logic, or intuition. Pilate, or Jesus said that he is the witness, the testifier to truth. And he told that to Pilate. And then Pilate asked Jesus a question, what is truth? Pilate, I don't know if he got it. But he answered his own question because when he asked that question, he was looking at Jesus. <laughs> and Jesus is the truth. So Jesus provides us the truth. When I was developing the, the, the conclusion for the sermon, I thought to myself, man, there are a lot of people, and a lot of them are believers too. There are a lot of us who are really like missing out on something important and we have to continually recalibrate ourselves. We have to do a objective, spirit-driven, manual override. Otherwise, we just stay in default mode. And so, who answers the questions in life that you ask when you're driving home from work, when you're doing laundry, when you're mowing the grass, Where did I come from? Why in the world am I here? And then where am I going? Graciously, Jesus, in his first and second coming, clears out all the garbage and the nonsense, and he leaves with us pure truth. You and I are very much tempted. We're tempted to continually answer those questions through our flesh. What, um, what, makes you, what makes you secure? And what makes you valuable? 
Those are questions that we're continually reacting to, even subconsciously, because those those needs are so great. Um, we all want to be secure. To be insecure is unreasonable, doesn't make sense. But we also want to be valuable. We all want to think of ourselves as more than just a clod of dirt. You know, So it's not wrong to want to be secure, truly secure, um, not a pseudo-security, but a true security in Christ. And we also want to be valuable. Uh, and those are reasonable things. So the Word of God interrupts our lives and says that, from all of your false idols, you're not, you're not going to have those true needs be met. But what, what comes at us is this, wow, you know, the 401k is looking pretty good. Stock market the last month is going way up and up and up. The last, so before you go to sleep, you look at the numbers on your portfolio on your laptop and you go, I've got it made in the shade. I am secure and I have achieved a lot. And then 2008 comes. <laughs> it comes back. It might come back. You know, I'm not a financial advisor, but that could always happen. And I'm not saying you shouldn't prepare for your retirement. You very well should do those things. It's just that you shouldn't put your emotions in those things. You should not allow those things to dictate your identity or your value. These are the things that Jesus is going to purge from us at his first and second comings. So we've got to reset ourselves. That, that's why I prayed. I don't know if you picked it up. I prayed after, I think after the congregational meeting. God, you're blessing Bear Creek Bible Church with a lot of money. But I remember just a few years ago when things weren't that great financially, but we were tested in kind of quasi-mediocre success. But now we're being tested in success as defined by the world. And so we have to consciously, proactively reject that the fact that we have a really nice balance sheet um, does not give us security and it does not make us a better church, right? Because all the New Testament talks about is Paul planted and Apollos watered and then God brought the growth. I'm not talking about numerical growth. I might include that. But I'm talking about maturity growth, you see. So this is the stuff that we always are challenged with. And this is the stuff that is going to be purged from God's people um, when we move beyond just sanctification to ultimately glorification. He answers all of our big, important questions. And he answers a lot of the small ones, too. And he fills all of our needs. We have to be careful what we truly worship, what we truly adore, what we truly trust in. He doesn't just give us the answer. He truly himself is the answer. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you, and I thank you for what you're doing in our world. Um, it's so much fun to watch you work. And I pray, Father, that we'll continue to be diligent in our work and then watch you work, too, in response to it and give you all the glory and credit. Thank you for Jesus being so active. There's a lot for him to do in his first and second comings. Thank you that we can graciously receive these great benefits because we're needy people. And so help us to apprehend them, comprehend and apprehend these great blessings so that way we are truly, from a biblical viewpoint, secure and valuable in Christ and no longer reactive to the things of the world. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.